0: So there's something a bit humbling about speaking about something like justification because it's been called things like the crux of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther apparently, according to his followers, said that justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. And John Calvin called it the main hinge upon which religion turns. That's big stuff. It's weighty stuff. So when it comes to, like, top-tier, non-negotiable Christian faith issues, the early church kind of hammered out our doctrine of God and our doctrine of Christ, and controversy was how they did that. And by the time we get to the Reformation, we're going to be dealing with issues of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, among other things like the authority of Scripture. But today we're talking about soteriology, because that's where justification falls in. Um... And it's not just justification, it's justification by grace alone through faith alone. If you haven't heard those terms like sola gratia, sola fide, these are, there's five of them, and they are uh, what make the kind of philosophical foundation of the Protestant Reformation what it is. But justification by grace alone through faith alone is what's been called the material principle of the Reformation, or the material cause. In other words, it's that out of which the Protestant Reformation uh, is made, it's the substance, it's the stuff that made the movement. And so, it gets at the central question of religion. If you want to write this one down, you don't have to, but I want you to remember it. How can I, as a sinner, be reconciled to a perfectly just and holy God. How can that happen? I am not holy and he is. So that's the whole question of justification. If you remember, chapters 10 through 13 in the confession are going to be um, the covenant from God's perspective. So in chapter 11, we're looking at what God is seeing And what he is doing, so our salvation from his perspective. When we get to uh, 14 through 18, it'll be from our perspective, man's perspective. So that'll be things like saving faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, assurance, things like that. But right now, we're dealing with God looking upon us and acting stuff. So I don't have time to go into it today, but if you want to go home and you want to study anything... In your Bible, there's three texts that are going to be pretty key to this whole deal, and that's going to be Romans 3 and 4, Galatians 3, and James chapter 2, okay? If you can understand the passages that deal with justification in those, you will have done a lot of the work that goes along with all of this. Of course, not that this was easy or anything like that to come up with. Um, So justification... So there's a controversy. Uh, some of you may have heard of the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Jerome wrote that uh, to give in 404 AD, kind of give the church something in Latin instead of um, Greek. And so when he translated justification, he translated this term justificare, and it kind of loosely translates into make someone righteous or make to make righteous. And when the reformers got hold of the Greek New Testament. They saw that dikeao really translates closer to something like to declare righteous. So make righteous, declare righteous. And they're going, actually this matters. And it did end up mattering because one theology came out of this one and another one came out of this one. Now, of course, we want to go with the Greek. It's not a translation. It's the original. All right, so we very much appreciate Jerome's work there, but we do see that that was a problem. Um, Not just the Greek New Testament, by the way, also the Septuagint, which is the uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So, would have been the Bible of common use in Jesus' day. Um, This is justification and righteousness are legal terminology. You need to know that. Because that's going to be what others are arguing is not the case. We are specifically arguing that this is a forensic issue okay and so jesus forgives and makes alive previously spiritually dead sinners by colossians 2:14 canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross and the confession's going to argue that justification does not mean to make righteous in the sense of changing a person's character, which is where Rome is going to go with it, among others, mainly the Socinians and the Quakers. I'm not going to really talk about why that is. You can go look that up yourself. What it does mean is to constitute righteous and to do so by declaration. And so anytime we're looking at the confession, we're asking questions like, I wonder what they thought about this, that, or the other. Um, You can also consult the documents that go with it. One of them being the Baptist Catechism. So if you get the older version, it'll have that in the back. And the Orthodox Catechism, which is a Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism. Hercules Collins did that one, I don't know, a couple hundred years later, something like that. So it says in question 36, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The alones are really important. So, this is kind of carrying on. If you remember, um, Romans eight twenty nine and thirty has this what we've what's been called the golden chain, the unbreakable golden chain of redemption. You've probably heard that language before. Uh, just to remind you, those whom God predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So the chapter before us was what effectual calling, and now we're at justification. Okay. And so, to be effectually called is to be justified in the sense that these things can't be separated. When God does one, he does them all. Okay? And so, just, just as surely as you are justified, you'll also, notice, be glorified. You ever notice how Paul says glorified in the past tense? Like it's something that is so sure, it's done deal, it's gonna happen like he's standing out of time and space or something, you know, because he is, and he knows these things. He's in control of these things. It's good news for us. Well, let's look at number one in chapter 11. This first paragraph is going to be what we might say, telling us about the nature of justification. It starts out with those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. So we just saw... Why that's the case, it's gonna come in two ways. It's gonna be externally given and it's going to be internally gained. So let's start with negative, excuse me, uh, externally given. I'm going to state it this way. So I'm actually going to go out of order a little bit from what the confession says. So On this part, you might want to, Mark's shaking his head at me, sorry. (laughs) You might want to follow the page. Because I'm going to group it as, here's what it's not, and then here's what it is. But really in the confession, it's not, is, not, is, not, is. Does that make sense? So we'll talk about it negatively stated. What is justification not. Number one, justification is not a moral or ethical transformation. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them. Okay, infusion, that is the terminology of Rome. Okay, we are going to say, and you'll see in a minute, that righteousness is imputed to us. They are going to say that righteousness and justification is infused into a person. Um, And so that's its own whole thing. Um, What they mean is, infusion means poured into. Okay, so it's almost like grace is this substance. And so it's being poured into the person and that is uh, the actual person becoming righteous uh, by God's grace. He's pouring that grace into them. But to be justified, one must become completely, truly inherently righteous on their own in thought, word, and deed. So you're given the stuff, but you got to make it to the top of the mountain, okay? The grace propels you, but you're doing that, okay? So it's much more cooperative when we start talking about sanctification, excuse me, justification from their view, okay? Um, Next, number two, we see that justification is not from us, not for anything produced in them or done by them. So this is against two things, what we might call sacramentalism and sacerdotalism. If those are new words to you, here's what they mean. So it's against sacramentalism in that the work of the sacraments are what is said to be affecting the justification, in particular, initially in Roman Catholic baptism, and then subsequently, as you go through the rite of penance, And I'll get into that more as we go. But That's really where the action is. The sacraments bestow these saving graces to you. And that's how you get in. That's how you stay in, by pursuing those. And the sacerdotalism is just this idea that you need a priest to do the mediating work between you and God in the administration of these sacraments because they're the only ones that count. I don't know. You know, that kind of thing. Um, But, so if justification is... Ours solely on the basis of God's grace as a gift, Romans three twenty four through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then the question at the end of Romans three verse twenty seven: What becomes of boasting? Well, the answer's right there, isn't it? It is excluded. Excluded, totally. No one gets to boast about anything they do before God. We have to start there, especially with this doctrine. If our goodness and works merit anything, even in the slightest, we have something to boast about, don't we? But the Bible teaches us that Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All our righteous deeds Romans 4, 5 tells us that Jesus justifies not the righteous, the so-called righteous, but the ungodly, who get saved ungodly sinners, who know it and admit it. So uh, this language um, originated with Martin Luther. If any of you have read his commentary on Galatians, it's actually in the introduction. Um, He talks about our righteousness as an alien righteousness. And that's a key word. The rest of the Reformation is going to pick that word up and use it subsequently. It is outside of us. It comes from outside. It's alien. And then comes to us. Okay? It's not our own. Galatians 2.20. By the way, I don't know if you see that, but at the bottom you've got the scripture references. So everything I say is there. So you don't have to like scribble really fast. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All is of Christ. Number three, justification is not what's imputed to us. There's that word. Imputed just means this. It means credited to, or counted to, uh, reckoned, regarded, placed to one's account, things like that. So this is the uh, against infusion we believe in imputation. He does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them, as their righteousness. Okay? So, number one, he doesn't Our faith isn't our righteousness. Christ is. Catch that? Our faith isn't our righteousness. Christ is. That is, our faith isn't itself the grounds of our justification. God alone, in his grace, is the grounds of our justification, specifically in Christ. Gifted faith is his, and this is also another important word, instrument. We'll get into that too. Or means, but not the substance of what justifies a person. In other words, we don't have faith in our faith, we have faith in Jesus. So here's question 61 of that Orthodox Catechism I was mentioning earlier. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? Answer, it is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God, and I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Those are very clear. I like catechisms. Okay, second, the act of believing. Our believing isn't our Righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. Faith is not a work. That's what the Arminians sometimes would say. But faith is not a work, it's a gift. We believe because God has given us faith. Any faith we muster up on our own won't be from God and therefore won't be a saving faith. Faith, in fact, isn't something you can strengthen on your own It's something you ask for and plead for from God. So, truly, if it's up to us to believe, then we won't. He has to regenerate us by the Spirit. Third, our obedience isn't our righteousness. Christ is. Our obedience is in no way meritorious. If we must obey to gain salvation and any of its benefits, then we are doomed. Because we can't do it. Paul says that any good works or obedience we bring to God for our own merit is, to paraphrase, worthless garbage. Okay? Among other things. The Bible uses all sorts of disgusting imagery for things like that. But he's talking about, we're talking about Philippians 3, 8, and 9 here. For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, there's the word, rubbish. Rubbish speaking of anything that would turn him to confidence in himself. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's pretty clear. Romans 4, 5 again, to the one who does not work but believes. In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, you could say imputed, as righteousness. And so, just to kind of give you an idea historically of what's going on here, um, the Roman Catholic Church has created a system to hold all of this up. You may have heard of some of these things um, that there's two kinds of sin, for instance, there's venial sins. Which um, are less serious, and they diminish justifying grace, but they don't remove it. But then there's these mortal sins, which are so serious that they nullify justifying grace. In other words, you can fall out of justification. That's a problem. If you're reading your Bible, that's a problem. And there's no universal agreement, by the way, on what a mortal sin is. So there's no list or something like that. I guess it's up to the priest or whoever. Um, But restoration in their system requires the sacrament of penance. Okay, You confess to a priest, you receive absolution, and you do works of satisfaction. That's how you get back into God's good graces, according to them. And by the way, I know if you have Roman Catholic friends, I have some too. And not everybody's number one, is aware of all of this as being official dogma, which it is still. And they don't all act according to it. So don't go back to your friend and be like, do you believe that? <laughs> oh my gosh. They might be like, what are you talking about? Be more gentle. Anyway. So what the sacrament of penance does is it earns you what's called congruous merit, which restores you to justification as long as you have the previous grace of baptism. You have to have the first to get the second, which is different from what they call condign merit, which is beyond what's required of us and demands a reward from God. There's a little problem there too. Our obedience is what? It's just what's been asked of us. And who alone can merit before God? Christ alone. God doesn't owe us anything. By the way, this is where they get this idea of treasury of merit. It's like there's grace and some sort of, I don't know, treasure chest up there. And if you do things like venerate images or pray to saints, or in, for Luther's day it was give indulgences to the church, then you would get that stuff thrown down onto you and maybe to your family members in purgatory to get them out quicker, right? So anyway, it's a whole system. All right. And number three also, anything imaginable isn't our righteousness, just Christ. In particular, the presence of the graces which come to us in salvation are not themselves our righteousness, That would mean our good deeds are in some way meritorious. We're not justified on the basis of the presence of these saving graces in our lives. We are justified, and then they are present. Famously, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, there it is again, boast. What it, where is boasting? Well, it's excluded, right? No one may boast before God. Um, Roman Catholics in the Council of Trent, it's a very interesting document. There's a whole list of anathemas. Uh, you know what anathema means? It's Paul uses that term in Galatians to mean damned or uh, yeah, something like that. Um, there's different translations, but that's essentially what it is. This is a pronouncement of damnation. So canon 30 if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a way that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him let him be anathema basically what that says is If anybody rests completely on the righteousness of Christ, they're damned. It's very plain. It's one of many statements like that. If you're interested, go look at that later. You can find it on the internet for free. In this way, the Roman formulation of salvation is what's called an analytical view of salvation, or of justification. In other words, you are justified upon analysis of your life. Your good works and your suffering for sin, which you can also, again, make self atonement for your sins in purgatory, so that you have to become inherently, again, inherently righteous. You have to really become perfect. And apparently that's possible. So, under analysis, are you justified? I don't know about you, but I won't be. Thank God that's not how that works. In so many ways, with Rome and plenty of others, the error or heresy is that we get in by grace and we stay in by works. If you want to just get really simple about it. Of course, we must call to mind Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer is obviously no. That's crazy. Foolish even. Orthodox Catechism, question 62. Why can't the good we do make us right with God or at least help make us right with him? Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. All right. Let's get to the what justification is. So in the positively stated section there, number one, justification is a judicial transaction. By pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. This is what God does for us. And this introduces the idea of double imputation. Sometimes it's been called the great exchange. And that's just that Christ gets our sin credited to his account and we get his righteousness credited to ours. So it's one imputation and another. So it's not just one, it's both. And that brings up what's been called penal substitutionary atonement, which is the theory of the atonement that we would hold to. And If you hear it there, there's penal, legal, forensic, substitutionary in the place of atonement, satisfaction for sin. Who's in place of our sin? Christ is. And that's what we believe about how we get justified. So the writers of confession of the confession mean for us to come away with the idea that justification is not subject to degrees. Okay? We may be more or less Christ-like in our day-to-day lives, but we are never more or less justified. Okay. Number one, under that one, let's talk about pardon. Our sin credited to a qualified innocent party and punished completely and sufficiently past, present, and future. That's what gets us pardon. Of course, we can look just at John 19 for Jesus' words, it is finished, to know that that's true. There's nothing left to punish. It's all been done. God is merciful and he is just. He doesn't wink at sin. it must receive the righteous wrath that it deserves. The question is upon whose head and then acceptance in acceptance we aren't returned to square one thankfully. If so we would immediately ruin it right and require further atonement. Instead, God accepts us as completely righteous in his sight and we are counted or credited as just and righteous, though in fact we are not. Luther came up with the famous phrase, simul justus et peccator. In other words, uh, just as if I'd, excuse me, that's the next thing. Um, Simultaneously, sinner and just. We're both of those things simultaneously. We are sinners, but we're justified. And the famous Jeff quote, I don't know where he got it, but Jeff says it all the time. As if I'd never sinned, but it's not just that. It's also as if I'd always obeyed. It's both. And that's that double imputation. We are pardoned and accepted. All right, number two, justification is for Christ. He does this for Christ's sake. 1 Corinthians one thirty. because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So as as we've kind of discussed already, the Father promised to reward his Son with a people for his own possession. That's that covenant of redemption, or pactum salutis, that Jeff has been talking about, among other things, especially if you've been listening to the Covenant Theology series. So I think this is illustrated best in Jesus' introductory words in John 17, his high priestly prayer And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There it is. Number three. Justification is ours only by Christ's righteousness credited to us. Instead, he, there's that word again, imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. So it's not as if uh, Jesus's active and passive righteousness are two separate things. Um, they are the same one act. This is what uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 5. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. Okay? This is what Turretin and many of the reformers, we distinguish. We don't affirm, we don't deny, we distinguish in this way. And so active obedience, if you're wondering, is just the accomplishment of Christ's complete sinlessness from conception to the cross and obviously before and beyond. But his ministry on earth, he actively was righteous. He earned us the merit we need to live in God's presence. Okay? So he is actively righteous in that way. When he we talk about him being passively righteous. Again, if you remember, Jeff said it's more like the word passion, like suffering, not so much like the way we typically use passive today. Okay? And that's just the accomplishment of his willing suffering and obedience to God. Okay? So 2 Corinthians 5.21. You may know it for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All right. Number two. Internally gained. All right. We're going to talk about faith more now. Um, Faith that receives and rests, it starts out as. Okay, so we've talked about how we're pardoned and accepted. So what does faith do? Well, it receives and it rests. So let's talk about receiving first. John 1.12, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this will play into chapter 12 about adoption as well. But what do we receive? Uh, one way to answer that question in our justification, we receive adoption also. And that's apparently a beautiful thing. And I'm gonna get to why that's extra, extra cool in a minute. But we receive... Which is not, what is, what is receiving? It's just accepting, right? It's not doing something for, it's not paying for, it's not grabbing, it's just receiving. And then resting, faith rests, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here we see the, not just the accepting hands, but the empty hands of faith. We bring nothing but our sin and shame to Christ. And he gives all of his inheritance once and for all in exchange for our filth. Filth. We don't contribute, we receive. We don't work, we rest. All right. B, faith's object. On Christ and his righteousness, and that's going to be speaking of the person and work of Christ and see their faith source. This faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. So what is faith? It's a gift. That's all it is. Faith's object is the person and work of Christ. We look to no one and nothing but Jesus, the Hebrews 12, 2, founder and perfecter of our faith. Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So if we bring nothing of value or merit to the table here, then all we can do is humbly receive justification as a gift. There's no other way except perfect obedience. Good luck. So since that's impossible, we must humble ourselves and accept that we are that needy, we are that weak, we are that incapable. You feel yourself recoiling from that even as I say it? We all do it. Nobody wants to be those things, but here's God saying, Be them. Be poor in spirit. Be meek. When you, we see your weakness, my grace is sufficient, and I'm shown strong. Therefore, when I am weak, I am strong. Things like this. So we are that loved, by the way, also. We're that needy, but we're that loved. Don't want to miss that. All right. Number two, faith as the instrumental means of justification. Faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness. So a faith that receives and rests, like we just talked about, rather than offers and works, is characterized primarily by two things. That's going to be these, the uniqueness of faith and the fruit of faith. All right, this is where it gets sticky. There's a lot of confusion here. We need to get this right. So we we talk about the uniqueness of faith. This is meant to guard, that's in the confession, to guard against importing human works into faith, which they've been very clear about already. But they want to be even more clear. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The law is not of faith. Here Paul makes a definitive statement about what's been called the law-gospel distinction. Okay, in some sense, the whole Bible can be summed up into those two topics. We're talking about law, we're talking about gospel. Do or done. Be enough on your own, Christ is enough for you. Which one is it? The law is good, I'm not saying it's bad, but it is what condemns us because we don't keep it. Right, The two, law and gospel, are in harmony, absolutely, but they are not in any way the same thing. One brings condemnation by exposing us as sinners, the other brings justification. And really, we should be reading our entire Bibles through that hermeneutic, that distinction, that way of reading. We should try to see which one are we talking about here. And of course, it's not just quite that simple, but I want you to to look at that word alone. Excuse me. It says only in yours. In the original it says alone is the only or alone instrument of justification, and then when we get to the second part, yet it does not occur by itself or alone in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. So we might, at this point, there's people that are going, hey, wait a minute, what about, shouldn't we like, do what Jesus says and obey him? And of course we should. Why, though, is the question you want to just slap a verse on it. It's his kindness, Romans 2, 4, that leads us to repentance. We love our father, not the kind of fear of punishment that John's talking about, that love casts out. So, there's a play on words here, okay? They're doing this on purpose. The The framers say it this way, the placement of this word alone is very calculated, It shows us how faith has an instrument, as an instrument relates to what that instrument produces, neither of which are the grounds for our salvation, as we said before. In short, it's kind of like this, the alone instrument of justification is never alone. For it's been said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So we have to forcefully and emphatically and insistently distinguish, we don't separate the instrument from its benefits. Okay? Faith is not fruit. But it has to be there for there to be fruit. And the faith is a gift, right? So, all of Christ. I want you to look at that word instrument as well. That's a very... Uh, Important uh, term. It's chosen for a reason. I'm going to get a little high here for a second, so stick with me. So they, the framers of Westminster, and we followed them in this, the Baptists did, they used Aristotle's language for um, causes to explain how this all works. Alright, which, ooh, not supposed to use pagan philosophers, but they did it, so get over it. I don't know. Like, (laughs) there's a way to do that in a holy way, and they did it on purpose. So there's the material cause of something, that's the stuff something is made out of, so wood, or something like wood. The formal cause is the form or pattern of the thing, the idea of it. It's like, if I had a block of wood and I wanted to make this podium, then I kind of imagined it, like that's the plan, right? That's the formal cause, the efficient cause, which includes what we're calling the instrumental cause is what makes or shapes the material into the thing, okay? So, well, hold on. Final cause, which is the fourth one, is the end or goal of the thing. What it's meant to be, what it's good for, okay? So the stuff, the form or pattern it takes, who or what makes it into that form, and what it's meant to be, okay? What it's good for. So if we're talking about a sculpture, The material cause would be the stone. The formal cause would be the idea of the sculpture. The efficient cause would be the sculptor. The instrumental cause would be the tool in his hand. And the final cause would be the statue itself. Does that make sense? So what they're saying is, in salvation, faith is only the instrument, or the tool, or the means, or the device, the medium of our justification. It's the tool in God's hand. God is the efficient cause, the sculptor, and faith is his chisel. I'm sure there's something imperfect about that, but you know, you know how these analogies work. Come on, Patrick. i looking at Mark. You're not going to say it? No? Okay. All right. And then um, we need to ask another question. How then do we reconcile Paul with James? Because James is going to say things like this. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see that faith was active along with Abraham's works, and faith was completed by his works. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Hmm. Question before the the answer. Can scripture contradict itself? Everybody, they're saying no. I think you're right. The answer is no. So there's no way, before we even start this conversation, that Paul and James are against one another or contradicting one another in any way, because that would be God contradicting himself. We know that Abraham... Genesis fifteen six, believed God, excuse me, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's mentioned three times in the New Testament. That line is used three times. Okay? Romans four three and Galatians three six. It's used to make the point that Abraham was justified by faith and that God justified him apart from works, since he was justified before he was given or ever performed circumcision. Okay, the faith came before the work. Then in James 2.23, it's used to make the point that a justified Abraham displayed that justification in the work of offering up his son Isaac. And that's in Genesis 22, which is at least more than 20 years after the whole counting him as righteousness, the righteous issue. Okay? So we know there's a big gap of time here. In that work, his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, says James. The point here being, not to contradict Paul, that's impossible, but when James says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, which is the line in verse 24, I know that sounds confusing, that the term justified there is being used to mean that Abraham's faith was vindicated. Okay? That it was proven authentic. All right? We use this this way too when we talk about, well, so-and-so said this, but I didn't believe them, and then it turned out that was true. They were vindicated. There's other ways to talk about that. But that's what was happening here. He was vindicated by his obedience. Not that the works themselves play any part in his being counted righteous, right? His being counted righteous is what produced the fruit of obedience in him and what saved him. So, not once, by the way, but twice after being counted righteous, Abraham pretended like his wife was his sister (laughs) because he was afraid, right? So, keep that in mind too. And so we can talk about the gospel in two ways, by the way, when we speak of it in covenant theology, we can speak of the gospel as the covenant of redemption and the gospel is the covenant of grace. When we speak of the covenant of redemption. That's just the good news, the promise. It's the word given to us. The covenant of grace is really just that guaranteed, that guarantee fulfilled. Okay. It's applied. Those benefits are given. So, The gospel is still good news. What's it good news of? That you get all this. And it really does happen. Right? And the covenant of grace is what does that because it's what Christ has done for you. It's what fills you with the Holy Spirit. Back to that unbreakable golden chain, foreknown, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, called, justified, glorified. All right, I need to move faster, probably. All right, number three, the basis of justification. All right, by his obedience and death, Christ. This is just going to be an expansion upon the pardon acceptance and the active passive obedience stuff. They clearly want to drive this home, right? So first we're going to talk about the satisfaction of justice. So the basis of our pardon is Christ's passive obedience. Right? He endured in their place the penalty they deserve. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Legitimately, and the old says properly. So these are just really technical, philosophical terms that just mean this, okay? Legitimately means exactly. Really means actually, genuinely. And fully just means completely and perfectly. So you could say it like this. He exactly, actually, genuinely, completely, and perfectly satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Amen. All right, number two, riches of grace. He gives us his riches. Because he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place, these things were done freely, not because of anything in them. Okay. The basis of our acceptance is Christ's active obedience, right? And obviously that given by the Father is a reminder of the covenant of redemption there, being uh, actualized in the covenant of grace. And so he talks about these three things, freely, exact, and rich, and for God's glory That's how the richness of God's grace comes to us. So free, yet their justification is based entirely on free grace. Grace, by definition, is a gift, not a cost for us. We've talked about that ad nauseum at this point. Exact and rich, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God, if you would think about maybe Ephesians 2 here, again, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness is what is described about what we get when we are made into a new creation and see there for God's glory as always would be glorified in the justification of sinners that God would be glorified in the justification of sinners and there again if go back to like Ephesians 1 we all know this one to the praise of God's glorious grace we have redemption through Christ's blood the forgiveness of our trespasses okay so number four the occasion of justification two things there's justification in eternity and justification in time so from all eternity god decreed to justify all the elect okay this is where they really get specific about those covenants so again pactum salutis right redemption planned by the father God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Peter greets the Christians he's addressing as being saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is meant to be against the view that the Pactum Salutis meant that the elect were never somehow under God's wrath at all; that that was just they got up hat. They were never anything other than righteous in God's sight and that's not true we're gonna see until we come to Christ we are under condemnation until in time and space we are converted and filled with his spirit okay so that was a problem more back then I don't don't know if there's anybody these days I can't think of anybody that holds that one but maybe maybe there is somebody can tell me later if there is All right, and then there's in time. And in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally, here it is, until the Holy Spirit actually applies Christ to them at the proper time. There's a balance in this statement just like before. So this is going to be talking about the other two parts of redemption, the Historia Salutis, which we might think of as redemption accomplished by Christ. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, as he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification in real time and space, not theoretically, or somehow eternally. It happened here. And then the ordo salutis, which would be a redemption applied by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit applies what Christ accomplished to us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Says Titus three, whom God poured out on us richly, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is going to be pushing back against two heresies. One uh, was the one that we just mentioned, and the other one would be uh, hyper Calvinism that says you only. It says a lot of things. One of them would be we're only going to evangelize people that kind of look like they're coming right? Instead of going, no, there's a free offer and we give it indiscriminately because we do not have the knowledge of God to know who the elect are. And we give the gospel and give the gospel. No, no matter how dark it gets, because we believe God saves. All right. Number five, the reality of justification. We're talk about security, loving discipline and restoration security. God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified continues. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Even though they can never fall from a state of justification. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is he just in that? Because Christ took the penalty. John ten twenty eight. I give them eternal life, this is Jesus speaking, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You cannot be snatched out of your Savior's hand by anyone or anything. That includes you, by the way. You can't wiggle out. Which, I won't read it now because it's too long, but the end of Romans 8 is beautiful. You know, it starts with there's no condemnation in Christ and who is going to bring any charge against you if you are the elect? Christ is the one who died, was the one who raised, who was raised, who's seated in heaven, interceding for you. How can anything in all of creation ever separate you from the love of God we have in Christ Jesus? And again, you're a part of creation. You can't wiggle your way out. He's bigger and better and stronger than you. So, I don't know, do something like, I don't know, receive it and rest. (laughs) Makes sense, right? All right. Loving discipline. This is against the antinomians, uh, which would be just a word that means lawlessness or lawless ones. They essentially say that repentance isn't something that needs to be sought out because sin has no consequence of any kind for the believer. And that's wrong. Of course, Romans 6. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Okay. Followed by if we we're to go back to Ephesians 2 and hear about how grace saves through faith, it's not our doing, it's no one gets to boast. What's right after that? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand which if we go back to chapter one, was before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. You didn't save you. You're not going to keep you. God will make sure it's all done. And of course, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, let's look at they may fall under, his, under God's fatherly displeasure because of their sins. That one's a little more squirmy. It's hard. Parents hate the sins of their children because they love their children. To love is to hate in that sense. We don't disown or stop loving our kids when they sin, we correct them. How much more is that going to be true of a God who's perfect in kindness? How much better of a parent is he than any of us are? Hebrews 12 drives this point home. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He's disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Of course, again, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. All right, we're we're getting there. Restoration. In that condition, they will not usually have the light of his face restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Not to a priest, but to God. Great example. David after Bathsheba in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But I confessed my sins to the Lord. He forgave the iniquity of my sin. No longer is his hand heavy upon me day and night. And this should encourage us because God promises that since he who began a a good work in you, he promises to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Of course, there is those times when we see people walking otherwise in our churches. And we have to go through that process of church discipline that we don't like to go through. And at some point, somebody proves that their, their profession of faith was never credible to begin with. And... We say they went out from us because they were never of us, still desiring their restoration for their repentance. So they would come back. We want you back. But there is those times, right? And that's a sad time. But until that's proven, otherwise you should look at everyone in this room and you should assume that the spirit is working in them even if they're not like you in every way. So I'll hold off saying any more about any of that. I could say a lot. uh, Because chapter 12 is going to cover a lot of it. Real quick, number six, the unchanging uniformity of justification. In all these ways, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was exactly the same as the justification of believers under the New Testament. (laughs) Who is Israel? (laughs) I can't answer that question totally today, but let's real quick. Hosea 11.1, 1, talking about Israel and all their disobedience, says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And then we get to Matthew 2. And you hear of Christ, out of Egypt, I called my son. And who are we in? Who are we united to? Christ, everything that's his is ours. And Paul is going to call us things like the Israel of God. He's going to say that all Israel will be saved, which can't mean ethnic. And so, we know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. This one always blows my mind. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, this is Romans 2, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. I don't know if it gets a whole lot clearer than that. Isn't God's redemption amazing? Isn't this why Paul at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depths and the riches of the glory and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments and impenetrable his ways. It's just wild. No one would have ever come up with this stuff.